Thank you for joining us today for state-level approaches to environmentally sustainable affordable housing. My name is Chell Miller. I'm the Government Law Center's Publications Editor and Events Organizer. I'm going to paste some housekeeping notes into the chat. Um, but please know for those of you who are listening in over the phone, this program is being recorded and we'll be sharing the recording with participants later. For those of you who are joining on your mobile phones or computers, live captions are activated. To view the captions, you can click live transcript at the bottom of your Zoom window and select either show subtitle or view full transcript. Please know that the chat is disabled unless you are a host or a panelist, that way we can communicate with each other. If you have questions for our guest speakers, please type them in the Q&A box. You'll see that button at the bottom of your Zoom window. And if you encounter any tech issues, please let us know in the Q&A or you can email me. I will put my email address in the chat. And we've sent CLE forms and program materials by email. If you have questions, please contact Lisa Rivage and I'll put her email in the chat as well. There will be one code word for this program, so please listen carefully. And with that, I will turn it over to Judge Stein, who will welcome us. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Leslie Stein, Director of the Government Law Center at Albany Law School. And I am pleased to welcome you to the second program of the 2023 Warren M. Anderson series. I also want to thank our series sponsors, Greenberg Traurig and family members George Charles and Joan Weissman in memory of Sharon P. O'Connor, Albany Law School class of 1979, as well as today's program sponsors, CSEA, and our newest co-sponsor, the ABA section of state and local government law, which I hope you will consider joining. The mission of the Government Law Center is to help state and local governments better serve their communities through nonpartisan legal research and analysis by bringing together a diverse and inclusive group of lawyers, judges, students, scholars, and community partners. We prepare students for careers as skilled and leading attorneys in public service, advance Albany Law School's unique connection to the government, and inform nationwide conversations on government and the law. We have a very distinguished panel of speakers today on the important and timely topic of state-level approaches to environmentally sustainable, affordable housing. The moderator of today's program is Dean Cinnamon Pignon Carlarn. Dean Carlarn is the Associate Dean for Faculty and Intellectual Life and Professor of Law at Ohio State University, Morris College of Law. She is a leading expert and an esteemed, uh, um, I'm sorry, she's a leading expert and esteemed educator, author, and lecturer in the field of environmental law and climate change and policy. And we are thrilled that she will be the 19th president and dean of Albany Law School, effective July 1st, 2023. Welcome, Dean Carlarn. Um, I, and I'll, I'll now turn the, the program over to her, who will introduce our panelists. Thank you so much, Judge Stein. It's a pleasure to be here. And of course, a huge honor to be joining the Albany Law School community. Um, but today I'm thrilled to get to have the chance to introduce our panelists and to moderate this really important discussion. Uh, so let me just begin by introducing our three panelists and then we will dive straight in. So our first panelist today is uh, Rory Christian. 
Rory is a, the chair and chief executive officer of the New York State Public Service Commission. Uh, he was appointed to this chair and chief executive officer role by the governor in September of 2021. Um, he was previously appointed in June of 2021 as a commissioner and his term there runs through February of 2027. Uh, Mr. Christian began his career in the energy industry with Keyspan Energy, where he first served as a civil engineer before transitioning to a role engaging government agencies across Long Island and New York City. Uh, later, he worked at Exelon Energy and subsequently the New York City Housing Authority. Uh, more recently, he was the director of New York Clean Energy at the Environmental Defense Fund. Um, he currently teaches energy efficiency courses at Columbia University School of Professional Studies. He also serves as a board member at NYSERDA. Uh, Mr. Christian graduated from the City College of New York Grove School of Engineering with a bachelor's degree in civil engineering and an MBA from the Baruch College Zicklin School of Business. Our second speaker today is uh, Cassius Kula, who is the Associate Dean for Development and the Director of Sustainable Real Estate Development and the Shane Professor of Practice at Tulane School of Architecture. Trained as an architect and a real estate attorney, Mr. Peeler has over 20 years of community development experience, including five years as legal counsel for public housing authorities across the country who are implementing mixed finance redevelopment projects. He also was the first director of affordable housing at the U.S. Green Building Council in Washington, D.C., where he advised state and federal green building policy. Mr. Peeler currently serves as vice chair of the Next City Board um, and has previously served as chair of the American Institute of Architects National Housing Committee and as president of the Board of Commissioners for the Housing Authority of New Orleans. He holds a JD from the University of Michigan Law School, which as somebody at Ohio State, I'll forgive you for for now, uh, and a master's in architecture from the Tulane School of Architecture. Uh, Mr. Peeler is, a license, is licensed to practice law in New York State and in Washington, D.C. And our third speaker today is Amar Shah. Uh, Mr. Shaw is a manager on the carbon-free building team at the Rocky Mountain Institute. The team he's working for is responsible for cross-cutting analytics to build a fact base on fossil fuels and buildings and identify some of the highest priority opportunities. Prior to joining the uh, Rocky Mountain Institute, Mr. Shaw spent 12 years at Applied Predictive Technologies, where he was helped global 2000 companies deploy data analytic capabilities to improve uh, decision-making and go-to market strategies. He's led engagements across three continents with diverse industries spanning retail, financial services, telecommunications, pharmaceuticals, and manufacturing. Uh, Mr. Shaw has held a variety of market leadership, delivery, and product management roles, including division leader for Australia and New Zealand. Uh, following acquisition of uh, Applied Predictive Technologies by MasterCard, uh, Mr. Shaw served as vice president uh, for data and services for MasterCard, where he was responsible for analytic partnerships with U.S. financial institutions. He graduated from the University of Virginia with a bachelor's degree in economics, um, and in 2019, he was a fellow at the Clean Energy Leadership Institute. So as you can see, our three panelists have a diverse range of expertise and experience in this field. So it's going to really allow us to have a kind of deep and engaged conversation today. Now, as we dive into our conversation around environmentally sustainable affordable housing, I think it's appropriate to note how timely this conversation is given the release yesterday of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Synthesis Report that really suggested how urgent the needs are with respect to thinking about sustainability and equity in the context of everything we do with respect to kind of future climate-related planning. Now, with those introductions, um, let's dive right in. 
So as we work towards developing healthy and sustainable communities, which I think are a priority for us all, definitely a priority in New York State, why is it important to focus on affordable housing, and in particular, environmentally sustainable affordable housing? Uh, what problems are we trying to address, but also what kinds of opportunities exist in this space? And I'm going to throw that open to all three panelists to kind of just lay the groundwork for the discussion that we're going to have. Um, Mr. Christian, would you like to start us off? Sure, I'm happy to. So um, I, I like this question a lot for a number of reasons, um, in part because it's, it's helpful to clarify the role affordable housing has played in sustainability and just quality housing uh, throughout our nation's history. And, and I often think back to my time at NYCHA, the New York City Housing Authority, and learning about the origin of that organization and the development of what was then called and still called First Houses in 1935. Um, at that time, first houses was considered revolutionary, um, a single family in an apartment with their own kitchen and bathroom and something available to low income New Yorkers. Uh, you have to keep in mind that was unheard of. Most New Yorkers in that period were living in tenements, multiple families to an apartment, sharing kitchens and bathrooms and whatnot. So in many ways, affordable housing has always taken the leadership role and shown to both affordable housing developers, market rate developers as well what can be done to make housing uh, more uh, livable, more efficient, and allow people to live in dignity. So I, I see efforts to make affordable housing uh, efficient and sustainable today to be on par with the history of affordable housing development in this country. And um, it can serve as a catalyst, not just for providing um, solutions to low-income in individuals, uh, but also innovating solutions and opportunities for market rate opportunities as well. And I see time and time again that repeating itself through a number of different organizations and developers in the city, uh, they begin thinking, okay, it's going to be too expensive. Let's not waste our time on affordable housing. And they do their first few projects and they quickly realize, no, this is actually more efficient and more affordable to develop and cheaper to sustain in the long run. So there are manifold benefits that can be achieved. And uh, what better place to do them and for the benefit of, but the neediest of the needy, the New Yorkers. Yeah. Terrific, thanks. Mr. Peeler, how about you? Sure, um, we didn't uh, coordinate on our introduction, but I um, I think the part of my uh, conversion really, I worked in public housing before uh, before being involved in, in sustainability really. And I, I, I sort of thought of them as really different things at the time, uh, but the more I learned about, about what the environmental and green building issues were, the more I realized they aligned with things. They just uh, were using different terms often than we were using in public housing, but certainly we were interested in, in the cost of operating both uh, as an owner and as a uh, and for the residents. We were uh, concerned about health disparities that existed in the communities we were working in, and so indoor air quality was uh, enormously important. Uh, but again, we didn't use that term. We were worried about access to community resources and uh and and so access to to transit and location efficiency were things that you know again weren't weren't part of the terms we use but it, it became clear that we were actually working on the same things and um and to to rory's point i think um, affordable housing has often been a leader public housing in particular there's a lot of uh a lot of the the challenges of incentives in a private market that I think are uh, at least made a little bit easier, even though some things may seem harder in, in public housing and affordable housing. Uh, I think certainly a long-term ownership and long-term 
interest, allows you to think more deeply about the efficiency of the buildings, um, but also there's often a greater connection to the to the people in the, the buildings as well. They're not sort of just uh, tenants. Um, and, um, and so addressing those other other uh, related social impacts is uh, is is part of the mission actually um i think hud hud building codes hud hud funding often requires uh, uh, affordable housing to meet higher building codes certainly in louisiana that was the case um before we changed our code recently so uh, they've always been a kind of higher performing in a lot of ways um or at least there's been the potential for that um i think the, the other reason to focus on on housing is is the we talk about 40 percent of energy use nationally being related to, the, to buildings and and over 70 percent of our electricity use is related to buildings well half of that is related to residential buildings and so if you're interested in addressing the kind of high level climate impacts uh, you know you, you can't look away from residential buildings in general and then the place where you have the most kind of capacity to have an impact at scale is is where there's some public funding and and kind of driving uh driving some larger goals whether they're local or statewide so um i think that's um that's a, a kind of why we're why we're here great thank you mr shaw how about you thank you yeah and 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 an honor to to be on the panel with uh with these distinguished panelists and with yourself um i i would say so rmi is focused on um, a climate aligned path forward that is sort of sustainable and energy efficient across sectors in our economy. And when we think about, you know, New York's climate binding climate targets, um, which are some of the nation leading policies, um, buildings are a huge part of that. Professor Peeler mentioned that specifically buildings are um, by the New York state's own analysis, the largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions uh, in the state. And when we talk about buildings, we're, yeah, we are talking about our homes, we're talking about our offices, we're talking about our schools, and it's, it's very challenging to avoid the intersections with affordability crises, with rental burdens, with the potential impacts of making changes to a system that's already stressed on uh, meeting the needs of New Yorkers, uh, even more so in a state that has, again, a binding requirement, not just related to reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, but to the direction of resources towards low and moderate income households and disadvantaged communities. And so as we think about how to em embark on that transition in a just way, as is required by New York state law, it's really impossible to avoid the segment of that, the housing stock that is, you know, really tasked in many ways with sort of being a leader of innovation and change uh, on behalf of a larger segment of the housing stock that serves low-income households that is perhaps not regulated uh, in the same way. Right. Thanks. Maybe we can talk with just a little bit more granularity about some of the challenges to really kind of moving towards more environmentally sustainable affordable housing. And perhaps we can do this kind of by category. So Professor Peeler, maybe you could talk a little bit about what some of the legal hurdles are that we should kind of have front and center in our mind. And this could be thinking it kind of across governance levels as well. You know, at what level should we really be focusing these um, efforts and what are the challenges in that regard? So what are your thoughts on the kind of some of the key legal questions and legal hurdles we should be thinking about? Um, sure. Thanks. I, I think um, I think of the legal challenges as really being structural challenges. I mean, so there's a legal component to them, certainly a legislative component in many cases. But um, but the uh, I think the 
question you asked was focused on uh, tenants. And I think the um, one issue is just thinking about affordable housing itself and that that it's not a thing, right? There's a there's kind of public housing, there's uh, there's supportive services that uh, may be needed in particular housing case. There's moderate income, workforce housing, renters and owners, kind of large buildings versus uh, individual buildings. So I think that's one challenge is we often talk about affordable housing as, as a thing that's opposed to some other type of housing. Um, and so, um, you know, certainly existing uh, larger buildings are having a bigger impact, um, and in some ways have a, have opportunities because of the the ownership structure and funding that may be attached. But I think it's really about aligning incentives. So uh, we're not uh, generally we're not trying to get people to do things that don't make sense. It's just that they make sense over time that may be beyond their horizon for thinking about the building, or um, it may make sense for uh, for if you could could align the savings. Uh, there's a split incentive for renters, which I assume most people who've made it to this panel have heard about. But the um, you know the idea that that renters can't make the big changes in the building, of course, that that would drive some of the energy efficiency, uh, biggest energy efficiency gains. Uh, but then owners uh, who might make those investments can't recoup the savings because uh, renters are are typically paying the um, the utilities. And so I think that's a that's a structural, not exactly a legal challenge, but that is uh, is is an important one in uh, certainly in in rental housing. I think one thing uh, when people think about uh, affordable housing too, there's this 30% of, of your income, gross income goes to pay housing costs. And, uh, and in New York, I believe more than half of renters are cost burdened. So they're paying more than that 30%. And that calculation uh, includes the costs, costs of housing like utilities. So, so directly reducing, uh, reducing utility costs directly will address those kind of metrics um, about, uh, about affordability uh, that I think, I think are important. Um, so really aligning the incentives. There's also, uh, I think, a challenge of um, aligning public, uh, public benefits with, with private kind of actions too. And this is the case for new construction and existing. Uh, but, I, but I think where there's state funding, as is often the case with uh, affordable housing um, or income limited housing, the, um, you know, the state's incentives from the funding agency are really capital and the kind of cash flow over time isn't really that important and certainly not what the state is interested in. And, uh, and so even if you align the incentives, kind of operating incentives over time, uh, the, the state in some cases, or the funding agency, I'll say in some cases, is has still, I've still seen them say, well, we're not going to pay for this because we're, we're focused on this upfront cost. And so I think there's a, there's an alignment of that, those kind of larger goals, even within uh, state or, or government entities that are providing this kind of funding that's um you know it's not that people are not interested in the outcomes or you know they're bad people certainly they're responding to the incentives that we've uh, put in place with these uh, with their the state agencies or the funding funding programs some of those are, are federal but a lot of those can have can be impacted uh, through um, through the state um, so I think it's really about aligning aligning incentives great. Let's just shift gears a little bit and think about, and um, and I'll ask Mr. Christian and Mr. Shaw to kind of address this, the two parts of this, but, you know, given where we are now, 
Um, I think two questions, one that's emerging from the, the Q&A, which I'd like to kind of put up front and then situate that. The first is, how are we defining environmentally sustainable housing? What does that mean to us? But then also, are there policy approaches and technologies that we've tried in the past that didn't work, that we're now learning from and kind of using to shift gears? Um, and Mr. Christian, perhaps you could address the policy side, and Mr. Sharper, perhaps you could address the technology side of kind of where we've been and where we're going. But if you have thoughts about, you know, really this initial upfront question about how we're defining environmentally sustainable housing, that would be helpful too. Okay, well, so I'll start with the environmentally sustainable housing. So when I, when I think of what that means, uh, I think of a home where the, the well, it's a benefit to everyone involved. Um, when we think of developers, ultimately they're interested in developing a product, selling it, moving on and doing it again and again. So they're profit driven. So highlighting that there's a profitability uh, in sustainability, meaning you can build a house that's well insulated, um, appropriately designed, uh, ventilated properly with the right energy use, both from heating, ventilation, air conditioning and other applications, uh, showing that that is something that can be done effectively, efficiently and cost effectively and at no additional time or cost to the developers, I think that's important. If we can do that, the next step becomes much easier uh, because most of the time uh, for the average tenant, uh, the, the energy costs themselves are unsustainable. Um, and we've certainly had that narrative um, very vocal uh, from many stakeholders in the past few years as a result of rising energy costs due to inflationary effects, uh, the conflict in the Ukraine and whatnot. So being able to lower the amount of energy you use as a first step can put uh, individuals in better control of how they then use the energy going forward. So they're not essentially putting money into the atmosphere when they heat and cool their homes. So I think that's a that's an integral part of building a sustainability-based uh, uh, housing uh, environment, uh, both statewide and nationwide and worldwide, for that matter. Um, Thinking through just kind of how that impacts uh, policy, um, I'm, I'm going to, and I have no bias in this, I'm simply going to speak some facts and based on my own personal experience. But one of the things that's unique to public housing in particular, uh, that uh, housing burden is capped at a particular percentage of income. So if you make $100,000, $50,000, $30,000, a fixed percent of your income will go towards the rent, and that's what your rent and all the costs of living with that home will be based upon. Um, so someone making more income pays a larger share, someone making less income pays a lesser share. But energy costs are baked into that, meaning many individuals in public housing in particular have no incentive to actually do anything about their energy use. And I can say uh, from my time at NYCHA, I've seen residents take full advantage of that, as rightfully they could. Um, I've seen server farms, lots of computers set up to um, make money through Bitcoin mining and other applications. Uh, in part because they're not paying for the energy that they use. And I could speak to many others, but I don't want to bore the audience. So we need to find a way to incentivize not just the construction in the right way, but also the behavior of the occupants in a manner that is going to be sustainable in the long run. And part of that is sending a price signal. And we at the commission have been spending a great deal of time thinking through ways to do that, both for affordable housing residents, but also for market rates residents and residents who are billed through their utilities. Um, I can talk to time variant pricing, uh, demand charges, and a wide array of other uh, efforts that we've put in place to send the right type of price signals to encourage behavior after the fact and ensure that consumers are using energy appropriately and understand the costs of the energy that they use when they use it. 
um, a, a conversation I had with a friend of mine in Texas a few weeks ago. Uh, he said to me, if people in Texas understood that they were paying $10,000 a megawatt hour for their power, I think they'd use their energy differently. And uh, we haven't gotten to that point in New York State, but that's a narrative I think applies everywhere. Perfect, thanks. Mr. Shaw, I would invite you to um, jump in now and maybe think about whether you have a similar or different understanding of what environmental sustainable affordable housing means, but then also if you could speak to some of the different types of technological innovations we've either tried in the past or some of the ones that we're really focusing on now that are making it possible to kind of be more innovative and more effective in this space. Sure, so, and just, you know, a, a definition if it if it's helpful. So, um, when we think about let's say sustainable, uh, sustainable affordable housing, um, a few characteristics come to mind. One, um, efficient. So, so, so a building that is it has a solid envelope essentially. Um, we have many homes that. Uh, especially older homes that are very leaky, they, they're very drafty. Think about a home you've been in that basically feels like you're being outside, right? They're very susceptible to the elements. They have uh, they have large gaps that, for example, rodents can get into or otherwise. They they could be susceptible to um, they they could have certain kinds of indoor air quality issues that have arisen in part due to um, basically moisture issues that have accumulated over time. It just depends on sort of the climate and the area, but I would say a, an envelope that is well sealed, but also well ventilated so that you have the ability to get fresh indoor air that is treated to ensure that people can kind of breathe healthy air. Uh, efficient also means resilient. So uh, it's like, I'm, I'm using that kind of liberally, but I'll say if you view efficiency with a mindset towards building a house that can retain a safe temperature longer during extreme weather, or during uh, a power outage or during something of the sort, then you're buying residents more time at a safer temperature, particularly residents that may not have the ability to, to be mobile, that may not have the ability to sort of to, 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 to move around as easily. So, so the ability to use less energy, but also to create a thermal envelope that is comfortable, that has good indoor air quality. So efficient and well-ventilated. A second component is we've learned over time that, you know, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and to reduce some of the outdoor and indoor pollution, we're not gonna be able to sort of efficiency our way to that outcome. We actually need to swap from combustion uh, related equipment like gas boilers or oil boilers or furnaces to, to uh, new modern efficient electric equipment. So uh, efficient and well-ventilated all electric. Uh, and as we kind of look forward, we're looking at buildings that also have the ability to kind of bring forward uh, demand flexibility. So the ability to kind of use uh, systems at different points in time in a way that can kind of manage their interaction with external resources like the grid. So if you if you have the ability to have on-site solar, if you have the ability to have some storage, then you're adding a layer of resilience and also reducing the cost. So when I kind of layer affordability on that, I kind of uh, affordable housing, you know, I want to be able to have those conditions in a way that does not increase the housing burden for the occupants. <laughs> Right. And is it does not make them more likely to be displaced, right? Um, so that that those are some of the characteristics. I mean, I think we have more as we sort of look forward into the future low embodied carbon construction, so um, more sustainable construction materials. But those are some of the characteristics. Um, and in terms of technologies, I think one of the things we've identified is if you can find new and innovative approaches 
to a more holistic retrofit. Um, so if you go in and you do a little bit of plugging of leaks around draftiness, for example, on the home, you, you do have the potential to reduce the energy bill somewhat. Um, but if you're able to actually do a more holistic retrofit, you can reduce some of the complications that can happen when you just do one measure. So if you seal a building really tight, but you had indoor air quality issues, you can actually affect the indoor air quality in a negative way uh, if, you, if you're not making sure that residents have the ability to kind of have access to fresh air. So, so holistic retrofits that deal with barriers, so that deal with kind of uh, mold remediation or that deal with required structural repairs and safety, um, measures that are then able to pair on efficiency and at the right times in the project are able to kind of embed the capital equipment decisions that, that can upgrade equipment. So it can be really challenging to go in and say, we're going to replace everything in this building at a moment when the building has a ton of deferred maintenance, uh, when it has a brand new piece of equipment, um, as opposed to looking at buildings that are at the right stage in their capital cycle where they need to make these repairs, they're potentially seeking funding to do that at the right stage, and they're bringing that in. So, so that some of that, we haven't even gotten to what I would consider to be kind of next generation technology, industrialized offsite manufacturing, um, some of the technologies that can really reduce disruption to tenant experience and have the potential to see large cost savings. So I think we're seeing some technologies, for example, in Europe, that we're trying to import. I know New York is doing some work on this, uh, but those technologies have the potential to really radically change how long it takes to retrofit a multifamily building, as well as to um, achieve some of the same performance outcomes in terms of improving thermal comfort um, and lowering costs. So that was a that was a mouthful. No, terrific. That's really helpful. I mean, I think it's really helpful for us to have this kind of thicker conversation about what we mean by environmentally sustainable, efficient, and affordable housing and what it takes to get there. And with that in mind, and given that we have this kind of beautiful audience of lawyers here, my next question is going to be really about what role law and policy really is and should be playing and getting us there. And in particular, what kinds of laws, what kinds of policies will really kind of promote both the, the, the kinds of technological innovations that we're hearing about and really just the kinds of developments that we need to move towards a kind of a healthier system of affordable and sustainable housing. And in particular, are we talking about, when we're thinking about the role of law, should we be thinking about regulation that's forcing change? Should we be thinking about incentive-based change? You know, what's going to be most effective in this space? And perhaps, uh, Professor Peeler, you can get us started, although I think all three of you might have thoughts on this. Um, sure. I think the, um, I mean, I, I think that incentives are good for sure, um, especially if they're incentivizing really innovative, kind of pushing the envelope uh, uh, work. Um, I think that the we are at a point though where there's a, a need for the floor to to be raised as well, and and I think we've seen that building codes um, did not change radically in their efficiency for twenty or thirty years, but in the last twenty years they've you know increasingly every three years uh, do get um, get more efficient. Um, partly that's a technological capacity to do so. There's a, a reference to cost that's that goes into those building code updates as well. Um, so it's not just a kind of 
requirement, but I think uh, making sure that you're consistent with uh, and keeping up with the, the building codes to to have a floor that's um, that's important. Um, you also asked, this isn't really illegal, but it is a policy issue. And someone asked about prevailing wages. And I think in Louisiana, at least we've seen uh, a real desire from the home builders to to have training available to 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 help expand the workforce that they see as kind of disappearing in certain ways anyway. Um, and there's money now in the Inflation Reduction Act and the bipartisan infrastructure bill to provide training so that people can implement things that you know might seem to make sense on the surface if you don't take into account whether people can install or operate the, the equipment um, or the, the measures. And so I think that there, there is a job training component that's um, that's part of the ecosystem, part of the affordability, uh, part of something. If you want to see it happen across the state, uh, there may be places where you can do it because there's people and a market. But um, but if there's an opportunity to 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 do some job training on top of this, uh, I think that's a way to bring people into a discussion. It's you know I think of that as a policy answer. I also think that um, I understand that. New York State has, at least in the climate bill, has a couple like an advisory board for uh, climate justice and uh, environmental justice advice. And I think, you know, at a state and really at a local level, whatever policies you're putting forward or regulations, making sure that that you brought people into that process, I think is is a sustainable approach so that, um, you know, you get both buy-in that allows people to to see themselves as part of it, but also the the actual requirements or, or rules become something that uh, that that respond to the actual situations uh, that people see. So I think those are those may not be legal issues, but I think they're really important process issues that drive uh, substantive impact in the um, in the law. I would just say I think that participation and equity are hugely important legal issues. So I would tie them in. And Mr. Christian, you have a lot of experience in this area. You've probably seen a lot of, um, you know, of regulatory and incentive-based structures and the way they interact. So I'd welcome your thoughts on this. Yeah, I, I have the unique perspective of not only having used incentives as a uh, consumer, but uh, also now creating them as a regulator. So uh, it's quite interesting to see how uh, the sausage is made and then actually eaten at the end of the day. But what I can say is, you know, it, 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 I'll talk about things from a policy perspective, right? And, you know, New York State and, and the country as a whole has long seen energy as a key driving force of uh, growth. Um, it, it's connected to our GP, GDP. Um, the more energy we use, the more productive we are as a society. And that's a link every nation has. Um, what we have not historically done is taken into consideration, frankly, equity and the impacts of the decisions we've made. And the, the environmental consequences of some of our actions have uh, not necessarily always been uh, fully fleshed out and discussed with constituents. An example of that I like to, to refer to, uh, if you think of the 1960s, huge period of expansion in the, the power generation in the state, uh, the Ravenswood Power Plant, built in 1963, is just walking distance from one of the largest public housing developments in the state, uh, Queensbridge Housing. You can literally walk there in just a matter of minutes. Um, that plant was approved. It's functional. It's still in operation to this day, and it was originally a coal-fired power plant. So imagine what the air around that community was like at that time. Um, a competing project or a sister project, uh, Storm King, um, which is in a very pristine and beautiful area, and I've hiked it many times, um, but that project was ultimately rejected because of its impact on the environment. And I'll, I'll let that sink in for a moment because the number of people that would have been directly impacted 
by that pumping station facility significantly lower than the number of people ultimately impacted uh, by the Ravenswood plant. I'm not saying you could have done one without the other, but that just is a highlight of how we were thinking about things 40, 50, 60 years ago. Uh, so going forward, one of the main policy changes we have made is we are looking at those equity impacts and we're making sure that the decisions we make today don't repeat the mistakes of the past and that we take into consideration uh, the voices of the members of the community in which our actions are going to be taken. Um, case in point, uh, when I began with the Public Service Commission as an advocate, a typical rate case would have a couple hundred public comments. And this is some time ago, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, today, you go to a rate case and you'll see several thousand, uh, six, 7,000 comments in some cases. So we want to have that public engagement helping us look at the implications of our policy and understanding the needs of the communities in which these decisions are going to be made. But just going back a bit more, you know, again, our energy infrastructure in many ways is in some parts 100 plus years old. Uh, so we're making significant changes uh, to how we're going to be using that energy. And in many ways, we've been making some aggressive changes in regulation and policy, but there's still a number of policy changes that we could make. Building codes, for one, um, we're going to be doing periodic reviews to align our state building codes to be much more energy efficient than they have been in the past. And most importantly, to keep energy as a priority in the design of new buildings going forward. Um, and this is part and parcel in Governor Hochul's Two Million Homes Initiative, uh, where we're seeking to build um, two million affordable housing development units um, throughout the state uh, over the next few years. So we, we see these as a priority. Um, and in terms of uh, aligning policy, that is something my office and uh, sister agencies, the DEC, uh, Empire State Development, and others, we're all working collectively uh, to examine what we can do. And, and we have a very lovely playbook in the Climate Action Plan that lays out uh, several things that different agencies can do, both from workforce development, as Professor Peeler mentioned before, uh, building codes and design standards and other requirements. All of that is under consideration and all of it is going to be necessary for us to meet our 2030 goals and beyond. Great. Uh, Mr. Shaw, maybe I'd invite you to jump in here on this question of, you know, what role law and policy should be playing, especially with respect to kind of what you were talking about earlier, you know, kind of next generation technologies, you know, as we sit at the precipice of like significant technological innovation, um, you know, are we, what's most effective to kind of really allowing us to develop those technologies most effectively? Is it things like the Inflation Reduction Act? Is it more forcing regulations? What are your thoughts on this? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess I, I would think about three, three buckets. So one is it would be important to think about the legal and policy levers and their funding as sort of all part of the same kind of orchestra. And so, you know, there are, the segment is very diverse, right? And there are some segments of the affordable housing stock that are going to require a policy signal that this is where the market is headed in order to take these factors into consideration at their next capital cycles. We've heard from manufacturers that they need that kind of regulatory certainty in order to scale up the production and the workforce training and supply chains that would bring the cost down and make this, these technologies easier for affordable housing developers to utilize uh, or owners. And so there is a, there is a, um, value to a policy signal that says this is where we're headed 
and there is a value to funding and support for um, affordable housing to make sure they have the technical assistance required to make sure that projects that are at that right moment today um, can get the financial assistance they need to not put new housing development in jeopardy. And so, so I think that those, those are sort of two ends of the spectrum. There's also, I, I should add, many regulatory sort of carrots that are available as they relate to sort of permitting, as they relate to modifying friction that's in the system today that might lead to a developer or a, you know financial party to see risk in adopting new sustainable technology. So, so the first point I would say is to kind of view them holistically and as leverage that, you know, if you use policy in the right way, then the costs come down, then they, then we actually are able to de deploy more quickly. The second is to really use policy strategically in coordination with this um, significant amount of funding through the IRA and otherwise to catalyze new technology development. And so that is around creating, so allowing funding for the kinds of projects that, as Professor Peeler had noted, the kinds of projects that are sort of innovative and that are likely to provide new delivery models to low and moderate income communities or that are likely to bring new manufacturers into the ecosystem. Uh, for example, uh, I think I had mentioned earlier sort of industrial offsite manufacturing of kind of prefabricated envelope uh, envelope technology. So things you could basically slap on the outside of a building um, that would significantly improve the thermal envelope of the building. And there's some innovation around that, but the ability to say, what is the scale that we think is require, required? What are the set of buildings in New York State or in specific geographies that actually have that need and then are at that stage in their capital cycle? And how do we use funding and policy to kind of grease the wheels to really kind of show the market that there's an opportunity. Um, and, and the last I would say is to look for the money and uh, policy has quite a lot to do with where that money comes from, as you can imagine. One would be identifying the pockets of funding that currently go towards um, building non-sustainable housing. I mean, there are incentives in every direction around uh, construction today. Um, one example, I think we identified a allowance for basically building gas infrastructure in new construction uh, where New York state ratepayers, uh, we estimate based on some utility filings, they pay about $200 million a year uh, to subsidize the addition of infrastructure in new construction, gas infrastructure, new construction at a time when the state is considering requiring all electric new buildings. Uh, and so those dollars are there. Um, that is, I would say, I would say incentives for non-sustainable housing <laughs> would definitely be sort of the low-hanging fruit. Uh, but there's also funding around co-benefits that we think are is really substantial. Um, you know, the impact of uh, asthma incidents, of outdoor air uh, air pollution, uh, the impacts of the impact of unhealthy living on people, on kids, on health outcomes in New York. New York taxpayers are footing the bill uh, for many of these costs today. And so really thinking about models, policy models that would allow New York State to unlock funding um, to reflect those benefits um, would be, I think, a significant opportunity uh, to, to really kind of catalyze. So, so providing the funding, but also thinking about the ways in which policy and funding for related priorities 
could support these objectives. Thank you. Now, I want to leave um, a little time at the end for questions because we're getting some fantastic questions in the um, and online. But what I'd like to ask from each of the three of uh, these of you who have this kind of tremendous experience in this area, recognizing that the folks who are here may be completely new to this topic and or may be very deeply embedded in this, but what was your kind of one thought about what the, the, the most important step is in the kind of moving us forward to really focusing our efforts on uh, environmentally sustainable, affordable housing? Like what is the most important thing to you that you would want people to know and or that you would want the, this, the, the, the governor of uh, New York to be really thinking about and focusing on? Uh, Mr. Christian, maybe this is a loaded question for you. So this is what you're actually doing, uh, but what would your, be your big takeaway that you would want this audience to think and be thinking about? Well, I, I would say that, you know, the governor has pretty much aggressively state, pointed out that that is part and parcel with her policies overall. And I mean, if you, you just look in the direction of where we're going, we've made, we're making significant investments in upgrading our transmission system in anticipation of the future needs of uh, renewable energy generation coming onto the grid and also customers providing distributed energy resources and that value back to the grid. Uh, that's something that's been ongoing as a part of public policy for at least a decade now, I would say. Um, in terms of, um, uh, from an affordability perspective, you can, the, we've provided several hundred million dollars of funding uh, to low-income New Yorkers to offset their current um, increased expenditures and in energy costs, again, resulting from uh, the invasion in Ukraine and the high inflationary environment that we're in. We're looking at new buildings established a building code process where we're going to reevaluate those codes every year going forward. And I, I mentioned earlier the 2 million homes initiative is just one example of many uh, building related activities that the governor has supported and that the commission has advanced um, in part because of this recognition that we need to make our homes more reliable. And, and the key thing I, I, I think everyone should understand uh, from renters to developers to policymakers and whatnot is this is both an energy issue and a public health issue. Uh, the more sustainable the home, the better the outcomes of the individuals living in that home. And this is something Amar brought home very clearly, but I wanna reiterate, the better we insulate these homes, not only are they more comfortable, um, but they're better ventilated and there are fewer volatile organic compounds in the homes, other emissions affect individuals less. So in many ways, we are trying to make sure that everything we do for all New Yorkers leads to better living conditions and outcomes for everyone. Great, thank you. Mr. Peeler, how about you? Um, yeah, I, was, I think um, I, in doing a lot of the public housing redevelopment, I did it and I, a lot of people resisted changes that seemed to to other people involved in the process to make a lot of sense. You know, why, how would you resist a kind of bent, rebuilding this community like this would be um this will be good for you right and uh, and i i came to think that a lot of i mean my world my limited world most of the people that i'm around for them when things change they generally change for the better in some way right things happen to anybody but when you say things are going to change you know that's not a, a scary concept but I, I came to feel that there were a lot of people that i wasn't around that much uh, for whom when things change, they often change for the worse. And so even if 
you know, somebody felt like, oh, we're going to, your things aren't good here. We can change and make it better. Uh, people resisted that because oftentimes that's not what they experienced was, um, was positive, positive change. And so I guess that's a, a long way of saying that I think bringing people together and along in this process, showing the benefits um, to, to the communities broadly, uh, as kind of Rory and uh, Amar mentioned, the health benefits, I think there's some of that, but, um, but also just genuinely participating in not just the upfront design and you know that sort of thing, but um, but but a, a true kind of operating and implementation participation. I think demonstrating that this is a, a, a an effort to benefit everybody at at, at some level um, that uh, that that will sustain these kind of efforts because no one legislation, no legislative change, no one policy is really gonna gonna get us anywhere near where we need to go. So I would say there's that kind of bringing people along, but at the same time, there's a, a need for real urgency. And uh, and those are competing uh, competing needs. Um, but I, I, you know, I think uh, public, public policy is, is uh, nothing if it's not balancing competing interests. And, and so, you know, those are the two things I think um, uh, that underlie everything that we might discuss with respect to the climate and affordability. Great, thank you. Mr. Shaw, what about you? What's your um, what do you want this, this group to take away? I'm going to be thinking about that point about uh, things changing for the better and things change for the worse for the rest of the day. So thanks for that. But, uh, that's um, deep. That's, uh, I appreciate that. Um, the, I guess for me, the, maybe I'll just sort of add two points. One is just New York doesn't have the luxury of thinking about all of these challenges separately if we want to solve them, <laughs> if we want to solve them in a way that we can afford, in a way that delivers true benefits, uh, in a way to, in a way that meets the timelines that we're actually talking about to address um, whether it's the climate crisis, to address the housing affordability crisis, some of the public health challenges we're facing. So. So, so I think thinking about these challenges as challenges that are not, uh, we're not talking about sort of the laggard sector that sort of needs funding as sort of a charity act here. We're talking about a set of, a set of real harms and challenges that, that need solutions and costs that, that New York residents are bearing for the existing conditions today. Um, including the primarily the people who live in 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 these in these units, but but also people throughout the state. And so thinking about this as an opportunity to really be smart and integrate them together, um, to find funding together, um, but just to kind of view it as a vision of an integrated whole. Um, and, and I would say maybe just a sub chapter of that is, you know, we're talking about something like building, you know, a vision to build you know, 850,000 new affordable housing units or new housing units to kind of fill housing supply. I would say that's an example of a test of saying, you know, and this is consistent with what, you know, I've seen in sort of the governor's announcements and otherwise is we should be thinking about building, if we're thinking about building 850,000 units, we need to be thinking about building sustainable units um, of, of housing. Um, otherwise sort of ensuring that our broader housing stock is sustainable is, you know that that's 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 a far cry from reality if if we haven't started by saying you know listen if we're building a new unit we're going to make sure it's a sustainable new unit and we're going to make sure that we have the resources to meet those needs 
Terrific. Now I want to take a couple of the questions that are coming up in our Q&A box over here. Before um, we transition, sorry, I have a an announcement for those of you who are seeking CLE credits. If you're seeking CLE credits, you're going to need to add this code word to your affidavit. The code word is innovation. For those of you who are joining us on the computer, you should see it on your screen. Again, the CLE code word is innovation. I-N-N-O-V-A-T-I-O-N, -N -N. innovation. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. All right, so just to take, we have a couple of questions that I would like to introduce here, but we'll start with um, one from Mary Berry. And that question is, shouldn't there be a reliable source of electricity before all houses are built to be powered totally by electricity? Uh, New York State has recently faced snowstorms, which knocked out electric power to commercial and residential buildings. And I think I would just open this up to um, the panelists to just think about, you know, as we're thinking about really moving towards environmentally sustainable, affordable housing, how do we couple this with efforts to also transition to a cleaner, but also a more reliable grid? So if you don't mind, I'd love to take a stab at this one. I think I have some very intimate knowledge with this. So um, when you think about reliability metrics, overall, New York is one of the most reliable electric grids in the country, uh, if not the most in certain parts of the state. Um, in terms of addressing reliability as a whole, I mentioned earlier significant investments in transmission and distribution infrastructure. Uh, this was all authorized as part of a legislative directive through the CLCPA in which we are making investments both to address existent, existing known reliability needs, but also looking forward, uh, unbottle renewable energy that is currently being curtailed. Um, and, and that's a transmission bottleneck. There's only so many electrons that can get from one area to another. And in many ways, not only is that limiting the amount of renewable energy that we can benefit from that exists today, uh, but it's also hindering the development of future renewable energy going forward. Um, anecdotally, a former FERC chairman recently pointed out that the need for transmission and distribution investments is far more significant now than it has ever been in the past, not only because of the growth in renewable energy, but specifically because of the increased extreme weather events that we are facing globally. Uh, this is not a New York problem. Those of you who uh, have friends and family or are aware of what happened in Texas recently, um, this can happen anywhere. We want to make sure the grid is working in New York. So from an infrastructure perspective, we're very much aggressively making investments to ensure the reliability of our grid. But I want to also serve an anecdote, um, and I'll use Long Island as a, a point of reference. Uh, Hurricane Gloria in the 1980s, that was roughly a 30-day outage. Uh, Hurricane Sandy, most recently, uh, we had outages roughly two weeks. Hurricane Isaias, around eight, nine days. You see where that trend is going. We are responding to storms in a far different way than we ever have in the past. Instead of waiting for the storm to transition through for the roads to be cleared and then dispatching utility crews to make repairs, we are making repairs as the damage has occurred on the system. This is unprecedented. No state does anything like that. And that is a key part of a recognition of where we are going in our transition. We need to ensure that the reliability of the system and the safety of that system is paramount. And so not only are we making upfront investments in capital to ensure that that is the case and provide flexibility and reliability, but we've also made significant operational changes, directed the utilities to make significant operational changes to how they respond to storms, recognizing the importance of continuous power and uh, minimizing interruptions. 
Great, thanks. I realize that we are short on time, but before we uh, wind up and I throw the ball back over to Judge Stein, I just want to say, you know, thank you to each of our panelists. I think what we've seen today is um, kind of a recognition of the way that we're seeing the intersection between you know, the, the pressures, the current and future pressures of climate change, the real need to focus on uh, affordable housing, and the way that this is really encouraging us to think of the intersection of environmental sustainability, equity, and innovation. Each one of these things our panelists have deep experience on, and they've kind of brought light to within this conversation. Um, and so I want to say thank you to each of our panelists, both for being here, but also for the work that each one of you is doing in very distinct and important ways in this field. Um, so thank you so much to our panelists, and Judge Stein, back over to you. Thank you, Dean Carlan, um, for for your participation in this, and and to to our uh, amazing panelists. It's uh, really been, um, I, I think, a jumping off point um, for this conversation, and to bring all of you together. I think has has just been excellent. I also want to um, give a special shout out to Professor Jonathan Rosenblum, who was really the impetus and the source of the ideas for this program, um, and uh, and. And, and to all our participants, I uh, hope you have uh, gotten as much out of this as I have, and I hope it's the beginning of, um, uh, of a, a much bigger and um, a very important conversation. So thank you all.